Today's Bible passage is from James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A happy new year. Uh, I'm thankful that we can worship God together on this first Sunday of 2021. Uh, as I believe you are aware, our new key verses actually come from 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-3, which includes the famous trio of virtues, faith, hope, and love, uh, which we want to characterize our Christian lives as well as our church life uh, in the coming year. So let me read that. We always thank God for all of you. Mentioning you in our prayers, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, faith, hope, and love was actually introduced almost a year ago during our winter retreat. It seems like ages ago, right? Uh, and it eventually became our 25th uh, church anniversary theme. Uh, at said retreat, I try to focus on faith as an unconditional trust, right? And we focused on Abraham and God, how Abraham trusted God. And then love was a covenantal love. That was what I uh, try to speak about as exemplified in David and Jonathan. And then hope, uh, the message of salvation that Jonah was reluctant to give to Nineveh, but eventually gave and a great revival occurred, hope uh, for the world. Uh, thereby, it was my intention to locate faith, hope, and love in three important relationships. Faith in God, love for each other, and hope for the world. Okay, So um, we all need to grow, grow stronger in our faith in God. We need to practice, demonstrate, uh, share love for each other, and we have to offer hope for the world. Of course, uh, Varying interpretations and applications of faith, hope, and love. They're not limited to these lanes. But I did want to provide some concrete expressions. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul meshes these three virtues, uh, describing each of them as sources of further desirable qualities. He mentions a work-producing faith, a labor-prompting love, and an endurance-inspiring hope. Each virtue activates other virtues. They grow. They, they, they expand. They make the believers even more spiritually fruitful. So what I would like to do in the early months of 2021 is to devote one sermon series in each, uh, to each of these three virtues. And, and with today, we'll start with work 
produced by faith. Work produced by faith. What did that mean? What did that look like in Thessalonica? Mainly, the believers there withstood uh, harsh persecution for their faith. Their trust in the gospel gave them courage and re resilience. Whether opposition came from Gentiles or their fellow Jewish citizens, uh, the Thessalonians stuck to the faith of, in the gospel that Paul preached. And a byproduct of that standing firm was that the fledgling church in Thessalonica became a model for the other churches uh, in the region. Okay. So with that as a backdrop, uh, let's extend out our study of work produced by faith to another apostolic writer, namely the Apostle James and, and his epistle to his community. I find it helpful that uh, this theme, right, work produced by faith, uh, crosses over into other authors, right, uh, who uh, comprise uh, the New Testament. Uh, now, the epistle composer James uh, was not the same James uh, who was part of the original 12 disciples. Uh, he's not the brother of John, one of the famous sons of Zebedee, uh, um, Rather, this James was the biological half-brother of Jesus himself. James was counted as one of the family doubters of Jesus during his earthly ministry. But after the resurrection, James changes a lot. His faith uh, led him to proclaim Jesus as Savior and Lord and then, became, then become a key figure in the Jerusalem church. He, along with Peter, uh, serve as the primary leaders who shaped the praxis and theology of the early church. Right? And the epistle of James that was written has many tantalizingly sharp expressions and deep theological themes, one of them being the relationship between faith and works. Okay, let me take a breath. Uh, you may have heard that chapter 2 has actually been uh, quite controversial uh, in, in church history. Right? Some have questioned whether the book of James should even be included in the New Testament canon. Uh, theologians as brilliant as Martin Luther in the 16th century struggled with some of the apparent difficulties with what James uh, could be construed as teaching. Right? The main issue, as you may have discerned, seems to be whether works are necessary for salvation. Do you need to have deeds or works to be saved? Paul is clear in his language that justification is by faith alone, right? Sola fide, faith alone, uh, is efficacious to bring about God's declaration of righteousness, gracious declaration. Uh, James has a couple of places, even in our passage, which taken by themselves, it might suggest that you need faith plus deeds. That's necessary. But is James really teaching that faith alone is not enough? I don't believe so. If we you know, take the time to examine the context more closely, I think the apparent contradiction between Paul and James dissipates. In my mind, the best way to approach the issue is to say, as we do colloquially about something controversial or complicated, is at first define X. Right? If someone is asking you something, you go, def you know, define, what do you mean by that? But I think we have to right, define faith. Uh, so we need to have common understanding of terms or else we might find ourselves mired in apparent contradictions. I would say that what James means by in, ineffectual faith is actually uh, only, it's not faith, it's a claim of faith. Right? Someone is making a claim of faith, and uh, as he's saying, they don't actually possess real faith. Like for, Verse 14 talks about a man who claims to have faith, but no deeds right, to back it up. Uh, 
you have to have uh, to to just say that you have faith does not actually mean that you have the kind of faith that Paul and James would concur as being salvific, right? A saving faith. James harps on people who make the claim of faith but are not actually in possession of the requisite faith that he is talking about. You know, throughout the epistle of James, the issue of the tongue, right, is an important one. Speech can be destructive or it can be constructive. Here, just because a person mouths a confession of faith does not mean that they really have faith at all. Right? James is wary of people saying the right words but not having the right heart or spirit. I believe this is what he had in mind when he says that people who claim to have faith but no, have no results, no changes, no evidence, no fruit of their faith, they don't really possess faith. Right? This kind of faith is in name only. It's inadequate to bring about salvation. A mere claimant of faith does not really have a living faith. You know, without any related outcomes or results or changes, that kind of claim of faith is dead. Uh, therefore, by my line of reasoning, James is not actually talking about works leading to salvation. He's talking about the opposite. Genuine faith and salvation resulting in works. Right? It's similar to how Paul states it in Ephesians 2, that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And he does this immediately after telling us that salvation is by grace. So he talks about grace, salvation, and then works. Right? In Philippians 2, um, we continue, he talks about we, that we continue to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works and to, uh, in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's consistent in my mind. Rather than faith plus works resulting in salvation, James is emphasizing that don't be so glib about our so-called faith. You know, if we have real faith, we will have corresponding works. If we don't have works, don't fall back so quickly on the defensive claim, but I have faith. Paul says all you need is faith. I don't need works. The truth is that we may not really have faith. Right? So again, another apostle, Peter, this time says, uh, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. In other words, check yourselves. Now, all this to say, as I think James is saying, that the living or resultant outcome of having genuine faith is to have consistent actions that follow. Right? I think he says as much in verse 17. Faith not accompanied by actions is dead. If a person claims to have faith but does not produce works commensurate with that faith, then that so-called faith is in form only and not in substance. Right? It's like he says in verse 26, it is like a body that lacks any spirit to enliven it. It's a body, it's a person, it's a, but it's just a shell, nothing, not a living being. Right? So if you just have uh, faith in words or in claim or in description, but there's no actions, deeds, or works, then that faith is not alive. Or as Eunice Pyun so pithily said this past summer in one of the Bible studies, right, while teaching on the same passage, the outside shows the inside. Right? So all of my <laughs> three paragraphs of, of convoluted uh, theological wrangling here, uh, as I want to credit Sister Eunice, this synopsis, right? The outside shows the inside, right? If you have faith really inside, you'll, the works will be manifest outside. 
in our remaining time, let us now turn to several arguments that uh, James makes to show that merely claiming to have faith is inadequate. Uh, even when a person purports to have faith and then adds to it some supplement to bolster their claim, unless they are real actions, that so-called faith in James James's analysis uh, proves to be inadequate to give evidence of a saved person. So let's look at three examples that he gives of people who say they have faith plus something else, but that all falls short of a living faith. So I'm calling it not living faith. Okay, so empathic or empathetic words, right? Uh, the people that say, uh, I wish you well, take good care, God loves you, God bless, but they don't have any actions, real actions, to support their faith. Violent emotions, right? The demons right, shudder when they think about God. Right? So you could have emotional actions or response or effect, right? but is that real faith? James would say no. And then what I called costless actions, trivial actions, insignificant actions, as, in, as compared to like Abraham and Rahab. Let's go through these uh, rather quickly. Uh, the first illustration concerns a putative believer who encounters uh, people with basic survival needs. For a person of faith to address a needy person with mere well wishes and hopes without offering any sort of support or concrete substance is evidence that the claimant's faith is not alive, according to James. He points out the hypocrisy of telling someone that you want something better for them without lifting a finger to assist them. That's analogous to lip service that is devoid of action. You know, actually, the, the issue of favoritism toward the wealthy was a nettlesome problem that James saw among his people. These so-called Christians evinced a worldly honor for those who had money and a corresponding disdain for those who were poor. And this was one of the consistency issues that James harps on throughout this letter, uh, even in the beginning verses of chapter 2. Now he brings it into the exposition of what real and false faith look like. You know, this illustration or application, I think it challenges us in the here and now. Right? There are real needs. There are needy people, especially during the pandemic. Right? Is this a fruit of faith? that you lack, that I lack? Are we just talkers, we'll say the right things, but when given the opportunity to help, uh, we don't. Does that confuse people around us that our message, our walk and our talk, right, are not consistent? The second arena in which James criticizes a mere claim to faith is in the area of emotions. I think James kind of sets up the readers uh, a little bit, like they're patting themselves on the back for the right doctrinal beliefs. Right? Principle among Christian tenets is that of the oneness of God. James kind of zeroes in upon that in verse 19b. You believe that there is one God, good. right? So far, the, the readers feeling pretty good about their doctrine of faith seems you know, consistent with orthodoxy. But in a masterful stroke, uh, James points out, yeah, even the demons believe that. You share that your theology with demons. They believe it and they shudder. Yeah. James establishes that demons also understand, also believe that there is really only one God. 
This causes the demons uh, an extreme emotional response. They shudder out of fear. But clearly, demons do not possess faith in God. They have knowledge of God, but they do not trust him. Their knowledge of God's reality does not lead evil spirits ever to salvation. And James shows that uh, if a person by way of faith has emotional responses and reactions, um, these could be good, but they can belie the truth that they do not have living faith. Only actions and changed lives reflect real faith, according to James. The possession of the fear of God alone does not mean that we really follow God. We may deceive ourselves into thinking that we are believers if we are afraid of God's righteous judgment, but it's only when we repent. It's only when we put our trust in what Jesus did on the cross does such fear indicate that we have the faith, trust, commitment uh, to the one true God. You know, emotions are a great thing, right? I think they're, they're necessary in the Christian life, but they can be kind of tricky at times. Right? They're important, right? They're helpful, but I think sometimes they're unreliable. Right? So uh, a feeling, a sense, um, um, an emotion, right? that doesn't equate to the kind of fruitfulness, the kind of actions by themselves, right, that James wants to emphasize. He would say, um, have the right doctrine, experience the right emotions, but put your faith into action. Where is the fruit? Where is the evidence? Where is the reality? The last area in which James defends his view that faith without action is dead is his examination of two figures from the Old Testament. The first one is, is uh, one of, if not the most important ancestor, known as the father of faith. You know, Abraham uh, obviously lived a life of faith. His trust in God was not only expressed in words or with, emotional, with emotions, but numerous times um, Abraham acted in pure reliance in God's word and promise. And the quintessential action that James points out is indeed the offering of his son Isaac as a sacrifice on the altar in obedience to God's command. And Abraham did not only talk about faith and claim faith and feel faith, but he put out in faith. He trusted that God spoke to him and that God was sovereign and that God knew what he was doing when he instructed Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Right? This, of course, is one of the craziest stories in the Bible. But it shows that faith should engender actions that put us at risk before God. You know, there's that term, you know, don't put yourself in harm's way or you put yourself in harm's way, right? I was, I was thinking about that and I was going, you know what, we should put ourselves in God's way, right? And sometimes that might look harmful, sometimes that might look risky and scary, but if it's really God's way, then that's where our faith can be demonstrated. That's where our faith can live where our, the rubber meets the road, as we say. So what I, the way I want to describe uh, this, this Abraham's action is that it entails or it involved a cost, a real cost. You know, Abraham basically, both in his heart and in his hands, surrendered, his, uh, surrendered Isaac to God. Abraham reckoned that God was the one who miraculously provided Isaac in the first place, and that if God wanted him back, God, uh, Abraham was willing to relinquish the life of his precious son. And the book of Hebrews has this remarkable commentary that Abraham actually already possessed resurrection faith. 
right? As early as Genesis 22. Abraham concluded that even if Isaac died, God could bring him back to life, right? So again, Abraham's faith produced a righteous work of surrender uh, to God, right? So um, that's what you know, James has been trying to say. He renders verse 24 as, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Right? On the surface, again, it looks like it's faith plus deeds in order to be justified. But what he's saying is true faith will produce deeds. Right? So you don't have to think about like faith plus deeds. Faith includes deeds is how I think James might want to, that's the way I'm understanding it. Right? Uh, so faith and work go hand in hand. And somebody said it's like, Faith is your left foot, action is your right foot. If you want to walk with God, left, right, left, right, left, right. You can't just keep hopping on one foot. Right? Yeah. Certainly, James argues faith alone without deeds is, is not living faith. And of course, Paul would tell us, you know, works alone, that's like, that, that doesn't lead to anything. It's just self-righteousness, that's just filthy rags, paltry human effort. They have to work in concert. Uh, be Paul's argument. Uh, it's, so all this is in line with Paul's argument as well. Uh, in verse 22, James puts it nicely. Uh, Ab his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did, with what he did. The working together and the completion aspect indicate that James sees faith and actions as extensions of each other. They are not independent or discreet. Uh, in the same way, James cites the story of Rahab, the prostitute. In Joshua 2, Rahab recognizes that God is sending the Israelites to take over the city-state of Jericho. She knows that her people are idolaters and destined to be destroyed by Joshua's army. Therefore, Rahab takes a big risk. She puts herself in God's harmful way by lodging and hiding the spies and then misdirecting the Jerichoian uh, detectives to frustrate their investigation. It cost Rahab... Uh, her people and her reputation. And she did something humanly dishonorable, namely deception and betrayal, in order to put her faith into action. She did not let mere fear in Israel's God suffice. Right? All the people of Jericho were afraid of God. They all were shuddering. But only Rahab stepped forward in faith. Her faith propelled her into action, even if it was ethically questionable. It was a costly action, but it was evidence that her faith was alive and well. So James you know, uses all these points to uh, persuade the reader and us that living faith is always productive, right? There's faith and actions. Works produced by faith. So as we commence 2021, let's examine our faith. Are we banking on the mere claim of faith? Do we try to shore it up with lofty words or violent emotions or hollow actions. Um, I think it's time to put our faith and action into a dynamic tandem. I hope that this year will uh, result in much work uh, produced by faith. Let me close with an article about the Brazilian surfer Maya Gabera. Uh, she recently set a world record for the highest wave ever surfed by a woman, 73 and a half feet. So I'm trying to figure out how tall that was. So a typical uh, apartment floor in New York is 14 feet. So five stories, that's how tall the wave was. 
She attributes her achievement to what she calls taking a critical line. In short, she takes her board to the fiercest and tallest part of the wave, where the most powerful energy is, where it is actually breaking. This, she says, is how you put value into your wave. It's only business school language that she's using on surfing, I think, right? Uh, she lives and works in a small Portuguese village uh, of Nazaré, home to, in her words, the most incredible big waves in the world. Speeds are incredible. You're going so fast and the wave is building behind you. It's a lot of water moving, an incredible feeling, and you're very, very present which has always been my favorite part of the sport, to feel connection with a very powerful force. Uh, Gabera's enthusiasm is the more intense given that she nearly died in the same spot in 2013. She was upended by a wave as faster and taller than any she had previously attempted. It broke her ankle on the third or fourth bump, hurled her from her board, unloaded an estimated 144 tons of water on her. Everything went black, everything went white, for more than four minutes, she lay unconscious. Three spine operations followed. Gobero was told by many experts that she wasn't going to be an athlete anymore. Her body was not going to recover, and she was in intense pain. Uh, but of course, you know, she recovered, uh, and she went back uh, to her sport. Um, I think if you wanted to really see or, or wonder is her enthusiasm, is her passion, is her faith real or genuine, right? You would say, okay, it depends what she does now after this uh, huge setback of, of, of being almost dying. Yeah. And, you know, of course, I wouldn't have used this illustration unless <laughs> there was this kind of uh, results. Two years later, she moved back to Nazare, or she moved to Nazare believing that the place where she had experienced such danger was also uniquely placed to grant her recovery. I knew that just being there would inspire me to keep working towards health. After a further three years, she knew she had started to peak again as an athlete, and that's when she nailed the 73 and a half foot wave. She wants to go another uh, five years, but don't tell her mom, and she wants to surf more aggressive lines. She thinks she can catch a bigger wave. Okay, extreme sport, and these people have different, their brains are wired differently, but why not us having right, this kind of passion, this kind of enthusiasm, this kind of liveliness in our faith that manifests in great works for the glory of God. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.